Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is going on, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 95 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Risotto, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. He is a former Major League Baseball All-Star left-handed pitcher and current motivational speaker. He's done work as a community ambassador in the Giants organization, uh, and his story continues to live forever through that franchise and through the baseball world. It is Mr. Dave Dravecki who joins the show. Who joins the show, J- Dave? How you doing? Welcome. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Looking forward to talking with you today. And you've written a few books too. I have one of them right here. I just uh, in preparation, I, I kind of I've looked. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I don't know if you can see with my background. Here's comeback. Very um, cool. So uh, definitely, uh, really excited for this interview, and I'm glad that uh, you've you're taking some time out of your day to sit down and chat. Uh, and while I was doing research for this interview, Dave, I, I found that there was a song that was written about you. Did you know this? Do you know that an artist named cousin Wolf wrote a song titled Dave Dravecki for an album? Have you heard anything about this? No, <laughs> that's awesome. So I, I'll have to send you the song. It, it, it's got a nice, I don't know if it has your name in the lyrics, but Dave Dravecki. There's a song called Dave Dravecki. So I'm glad I could break that news to you. Yeah, thank you. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, anyways, we, we got a lot to get to. And I know many people talk about your incredible story. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But what we never hear about is Dave Dravecki, the baseball fan. Now, I know that uh, since you've been retired, you've kept up kind of with the game. Uh, are you still someone that will, you know, watch every Giants game and keep up with the league and, and the way things are going? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Steve and I, um, I've got the MLB package. Um, and so I follow them consistently, um, try to catch them every night and uh, try and stay uh, connected with, you know, the players, uh, the moves, who's up, who's not. Because as an ambassador, when you go to the ballpark and you're spending time with fans, Obviously, you want to you don't want to be caught off guard and they'll ask you questions about a certain player. And the next thing you know, you have no clue um, who they're talking about. And so I really do try to stay connected with the ball club. Plus, you know, it's uh, being a part of the organization is like being a part of a family. And so staying connected just allows me um, from a distance um, to be able to still feel like a family as I sit and watch them play and and obviously, it prepares me for when I go into town um, to see the Giants play and spend time with the fans. And how often do you turn on the TV and, you know, it'd be the fourth inning in the bullpen. There's a guy warming up in the bullpen. Do you always say to yourself, man, it's a different game now. You know, starters aren't going eight innings and nine innings. Do you ever turn on the TV and go, wow, this is different from when I played? Um, I turn on the TV, but I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> it might be a little bit more intense. Um, a lot more than just, wow, this is different than it was. Because uh, for me, being an old school guy, I, I like the starting pitcher going, you know, seven, eight, nine innings. And, and, and to be honest with you, it's frustrating when I watch and I see the manager come out after four innings. And what's even more frustrating is he's coming out because the guy's thrown 95 pitches. And, you know, on a regular basis, I was throwing 95 pitches 
through the course of a nine inning game. And, and so that part of the game has been really hard for me personally, being a starting pitcher. Um, but at the same time, I understand that the game has changed and, you know, and obviously, you know, I, I respect where it's going, whether I like it or not. Um, you know, you have to respect where the game is going and, and I'm still a huge fan of it. So it certainly doesn't distract me from wanting to cheer for my Giants. And uh, growing up, were you always kind of attached to baseball? How was that something that uh, kind of developed into, you know, as a hobby? And then how did it kind of develop into more of a lifestyle? Yeah. You know what? I grew up um, in a family. I had four other brothers. And so we all played. Mom and dad ran us all over the place, whether it was, you know, to a gym for basketball, uh, to a football field uh, where we played football or to a baseball field. And, and so I was actively involved in athletics, even ran track when I was in grade school. So I was actively involved in a lot of um, uh, sports during that period of time, which brought me to this incredible love for baseball. And I think it really happened when I was in, uh, um, when I was in high school, uh, there was a school that was recruiting me to play football out of grade school. And I loved football. It was actually my first love. But the only problem was the school that wanted me to go there and play high school football didn't have a baseball program. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go to the local high school that has the baseball program. And, and so as a result, I ended up going to Boardman High School where I played baseball and basketball. And, and the reason why I switched from football was because the football coach said, if you're going to play football for me, you can't play baseball. And I said, well, then I guess I'm going to be playing baseball instead of football. And I needed something. I wanted something to help me stay in shape for baseball. So for the heck of it, I just went out and tried out for the freshman basketball team. And I was the 13th guy picked. And I thought, you know, if I just put some effort into this, I might actually end up getting to play a whole lot more and maybe having an impact on my basketball team. And, and so I did that. And, uh, and, and it became a great, um, it became a great preparation physically for me and mentally, you know, in competing um, for the game of baseball that I love so much and, and obviously ended up playing in high school. You ever think about what would have happened if you stayed with football? Um, uh, no, it was really, <laughs> it was really easy to move away from football when I went into the gym as a freshman and I saw the size of the guys that were lifting the weights. And I realized at that point, I had made the right decision because I'd have been crushed by those guys. And I didn't want any part of being hit by those big boys at the time were boys that were growing up into men and they became very big men. And if, if you're familiar with the Youngstown area at all, um, it's you know where Jim Tressel took the YSU Penguins to several championships. It's uh, where the DeBartlow family is and the 49ers come in and always make a swing through Youngstown and have practice. And so football is huge in the Steel Valley. And as a result of that, there have been a lot of great football players that have actually come out of the Valley that have gone on to the NFL and had incredible careers. So um, I'm, I, I feel very fortunate that I made the, a right decision at the right time when I was a freshman in high school to focus on baseball instead of football. It could have been a punter or something, maybe, you know, <laughs> no, no, 
didn't have a good foot. <laughs> uh, so drafted drafted by the Pirates in, in 1987, then traded to the Padres in 81, and then debuting in 82. Um, you know, as a lifelong Ohio guy at the time, what was, you know, what were kind of your first impressions of the West Coast and being away from the family? Because I know that could set in really tough for a lot of players. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I wasn't so attached to Ohio. As much as I loved it, it was my home. It was where I was born and raised. When I had the opportunity to get out, oh man, I was just, I was on an adventure. And so it was so much fun to be able to, you know, when I signed for Pitt with Pittsburgh, I went to Charleston, South Carolina, and then came back and got married. And then my wife and I, the next year, went to Buffalo. And then we went back to Buffalo, New York. And then from there, I got um, traded and I was in Amarillo, Texas. And then I went to Hawaii, you know, so I was traveling all over the place and we were actually enjoying all these places where we called home for a short period of time during the summer. And, and so when we ended up being in California and getting to the big leagues, um, uh, it was really easy to just say, hey, mom and dad, come on out and enjoy what we're experiencing out here. You know, so uh, the ties are still there. Um, my family still lives back there, the majority of my family. And obviously I have incredibly fond memories of growing up as a boy in Ohio and, and playing baseball and, and I'm a huge Buckeye fan. And so, you know, uh, there's still a lot of, um, there's still a lot of Ohio in this kid who has traveled all over the place, uh, for most of his life. And you're a little older than him, but but you and Tony Gwynn kind of came up to the big leagues around the same time. I, I know um, a little older, but still kind of around the same time. How special was it to have the opportunity to play with him? Because we don't really see, you know, baseball players anymore like Tony Gwynn and like the way he hit and using, you know, they, they nicknamed it after him, the five and a half hole on the left side of the infield. And, you know, he had speed. He was a good outfielder. He was a good person. Tell me what it was like to play with, with Tony Gwynn. Yeah. You know, I'm really grateful you brought him up, Stephen, because uh, he really, he really is. Um, he was um, an incredible individual. And, you know, I had the privilege of actually walk, watching him um, from his minor league days, get to the big leagues with me, and then watch his career as a teammate and then as an opponent for a few more years with the Giants. And so, you know, experiencing that was really special because you realized, like watching Barry Bonds, that you were watching someone very special, someone very rare in relationship to his talent. But the other thing that was so impressive about Tony was just the way he carried himself on and off the field. You know, a strong family man. Um, Matter of fact, I remember uh, many times uh, um, Alicia coming and, and telling us that uh, Anthony, their son, had been chasing my daughter around the, you know, the, um, uh, the playroom where the kids were being babysat during the game and he was trying to kiss her. And, and so, I mean, you know, it, it was just our families were close. They were there when we were in Hawaii and I gave birth, my, my wife gave birth to our first child, Tiffany. Um, uh, you know, just a lot of wonderful memories around this um, extremely gifted man, but even more importantly, uh, amazing human being. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And, and uh, um, just so sad 
to even be talking about him knowing he's not here. Um, but at the same time, uh, he's left a wonderful legacy behind and some amazing memories for me and many of my teammates, and especially us buds that were in the minor leagues together because Tony never forgot and always remembered all those guys. And, and that was, was really special about him. And an excellent coach too, in San Diego at the, at the college level. And he was someone who a lot of current big league players look at as, you know, a father figure, a mentor. Uh, and speaking of coach coaches, uh, another guy that ended up having a really good big league career, not just as a player, but as a manager, you played with Bruce Bochy. He was the backup catcher in San Diego. And well, when you were there and uh, you guys crossed paths later, of course, in San Francisco, you got to see him a lot. Uh, explain your kind of relationship with Boach, because I'm sure you guys are, are pretty, pretty close knitted. Yeah, you know, um, obviously, uh, being Boach's teammate um, was a unique experience. Um, I remember rooming with Boach during spring training for a couple of nights before we got into San Diego. And we were on the tail end of um, spring training at the time, and we were going through um, Palm Springs. And I remember, uh, you know, we were getting ready to play the Angels in Palm Springs. And, and uh, you know, in, in the morning, first thing in the morning, man, he's got country western music on. Uh, we get back, he's got country western music on. And I mean, it's nonstop. And <laughs> all I can remember, all I, when I think of Bochi, all I hear in my head is Sweet Home Alabama. And it just keeps playing over and over again. You know, Boach was a Boach was a, a quiet guy. He wasn't, um, you know, uh, there are guys that are out there. Boach wasn't that guy. Um, you could tell he was cerebral. You know, when he came to the game, he understood the game well. And uh, he called a good game behind the dish, you know. And, and, uh, and so, um, you know, the things that I remember about him, you know, number one, he was a great teammate. And, and number two, um, he was really good at his craft. Unfortunately, he was backing up Terry Kennedy, you know, and, and so um, obviously he gained a lot of wisdom in his role and went on to be, you know, uh, a Hall of Fame manager. I mean, there's no question in my mind that Boach is going to be a Hall of Fame manager. And uh, it's just a matter of time before he gets elected into the Hall. Uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that probably was even more uh, special to me and Jan personally. You know, when you're out of the game for a while and you reconnect with your old teammates, it's really different. You know, we've lived enough life to have a greater appreciation for each other, for where we find ourselves. And actually as an ambassador with the Giants, I got to know Bochi a whole lot more than I did as a teammate. And, you know, when you're playing, you know, the pitchers, they hang together. The regulars, they hang together. You know, utility guys, they hang together. It seems like there's these little groups that kind of find their niche and then you move through the season and you support one another. But, you know, when you're away from the game, you know, you find yourself hanging with your guys. Well, all of a sudden that's over. And, and I'm finding myself developing really close relationships with, um, with Will Clark and Robbie Thompson, Chris Spire, um, you know, and, and Boach. 
And so, you know, we got to spend some time with, with, uh, with Bruce and his wife um, when I would come into the city, when we actually lived in the city for a while and, and had a chance to spend a lot of wonderful time with those guys. And, you know, obviously it was a lot, a lot of it was around baseball, but I found that we were a lot closer during that time, you know, just because of where we were at in our stage of life. Our kids were having kids, you know, and uh, and so there were there was just a lot of stuff in common that uh, you know that allowed us to be able to relate together in a in a deeper way, and I think in a better way. And something something to the uh, the notion of seeing them off the field and the way that they're you know they conduct themselves off the field. Uh, so traded to the Giants, nineteen eighty seven, uh, and then after the uh, nineteen eighty eight season. You got the news. You got the news that there was the, the the cancerous tumor in your your pitching arm. What was the the first thing that went through your mind? Was it fear, anger, frustration? Um, what was kind of the the first of those emotions to go through your mind? Hope, maybe. Well, you know, you know, Stephen. I think the the thing that that was initial initially hit us was shock. And, and part of the reason why was um, because prior to going in and having the MRI to determine what this mass was that was in my left arm, we were, con- we were considering the possibility that it was blocker's bruise. Um, blocker's bruise was a term back then that was used in the NFL. Guys would get hit, you know, and you're getting hit by a 300 pound dude or someone running at four, three speed. And you're, you're colliding and you're, you're, you're smashing into somebody else's body. And in doing so, you can, you can tear micro muscle fiber. And that muscle fiber can calcify and harden. And they would, they, you know, when you had a deep bruise and that deep bruise got hard, oftentimes they would deduce from that, that there was some muscle tear there that it calcified. And so that's why they called it blockers bruise. And so they thought maybe because of throwing a baseball so much that I had torn muscle fiber and in the process, it had calcified and hardened in that area. And so going into the MRI, that's, I mean, that's all I'm thinking. I'm not thinking cancer. There's no way. And we were sitting in the examining room and, and outside in the hallway, the doctors were coming down. The door was open probably two or three inches so we could actually hear them carrying on a conversation before they came in to talk to us. And that's when we heard them say, as they looked at the films before bringing them in, um, we're gonna have to tell them they have cancer. And so when I heard that and Jan heard that, we both looked at each other. She was sitting in a chair and I was up on the table and we were both shocked to the point where we were just staring at each other. and we didn't know what to do. And all I, all I could think of doing at that time was to pray. And I just said a very simple prayer along these lines, God, I don't know what we're about to face, but whatever it is, give us the strength to endure. That's all I ask. They came in and they confirmed that in fact, I had cancer. And when I heard that word from them, I went into another place. I was there physically, but I was not there mentally. And all of a sudden, the first thing that ran through my mind at, you know, 31 years of age, 32, is if I die from this disease, who's going to marry my wife? 
who's, and that person's going to end up raising my children. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden it's like, will this person love them as much as I do? But I have to be honest, Stephen, the scariest part of it was, will this person love them more? Because I knew who I was. And even as a Christian, I wasn't perfect. And I had made mistakes and I hadn't been the best dad. And I was an absentee dad. I mean, I'm playing baseball, traveling half the time um, somewhere in the country and, and, and away from my family. And, and the other half of the time that I'm there, you know, the kids go to bed before I come home and they wake up and go to school before I wake up. And so I rarely saw my children. And so it was a real gut check. That moment was, um, was I think, the real gut check for me um, as I was facing this thing called cancer. Was baseball even in the thoughts at all? Was it even near the top of the list of, of thoughts? No, no, it wasn't even close. Um, until, until I heard the doctor say, outside of a miracle, you'll never pick again. And, and, and in that moment, I thought to myself, well, okay, I trust you. You know what you're talking about. You've seen what has invaded my body. You know what you're going to have to do. You know that more than likely removing the mass along with 50% of my deltoid muscle is going to make it almost impossible. And according to you, outside of a miracle, it won't happen, is to be able to throw a baseball again. But at the same time, just because you have said that doesn't mean that that will be the outcome. And so I have to move forward trusting God with this process. And, and so not only will I trust God, but I've got to trust you with this process, Doc. I got to trust all the nurses, all the therapists, all the trainers, all the people that would play a part in encouraging me, my teammates my family, the organization, their support, all of those people came together and I would have to trust them through this, this process to hopefully get back to the mound. But the most important thing that I had to focus on was my health first. Take care of the health. And, and once you get your arm back to a place where everything looks good and the doctors say you can move to the next level of training, then you move. And then when they say you can move again, you move. And the reason why I took that approach was because I didn't want to wonder for the rest of my life, had I not attempted the comeback as to whether or not I would have been ever, ever able to pitch again. I did not want to live with that question looming over my head. Just because you walked away and you didn't try, you never would have discovered whether or not you were capable of coming back. And so Dave was not going to live there. He wasn't going to go down that path. He was going to say, look, we'll take it one step at a time. And as it comes, if it's a thumbs up, then I'm moving forward, man. And gosh, I'll tell you what, August 10th, 1989 was a pretty sweet day, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I was going to go next, August 10th, 1989. I mean, obviously, we, we know what the reception was with the fans at Candlestick Park. It was crazy. They, they, you know, standing ovations all over the place. But what was the reception 
from inside the clubhouse and teammates and coaches, what was kind of the response that you got from them? You know, it's really interesting. It's, it's hard to recall the response of my teammates, but what's been really sweet is I've had a chance to spend time with Mike Kruko and Robbie Thompson and Kevin Mitchell and Jeffrey Leonard and Will Clark. And to be able to sit and listen to them tell their side of the story when they were in the clubhouse watching me was overwhelming. Um, to hear them, to hear them say, there was no way you were gonna come back. This is just, this is just crazy stuff. And 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 this and to hear. Um, Mike Kruko and, and all these guys talking about when you were there and you started throwing, we were like, oh my gosh, what's going on? This is unbelievable. So, I mean, they were doing what I was doing. The only problem was I was so wrapped up in what I was trying to do, which was accomplish making a comeback that I didn't recognize and I didn't see the impact. I mean, guys like Atlee Hammaker, who's one of my closest friends to this day, um, I mean, oftentimes we will talk and he'll share what was going on in his heart as he watched me go through that process. Scotty Gorelts, Brett Butler, Greg Litton. I mean, Jeff Brent, you could go down the list. And it's just amazing when I sit and I listen to them talk about what was going on in them as they were watching me. And, uh, and so those conversations have been really sweet, humbling. Um, you know, to, to recognize Candy Maldonado just came to mind, man. He was like Trebecki. This was unbelievable. And so, you know, it just, it, it was just really special, really special. And then of course, was it icing on the top that you pitched really well that day too? Oh, are you kidding, man? That was, that was more than icing on the cake. Um, it was more than the cherry on top of the icing. Uh, it was unbelievable. Um, it was a moment where, you know, you stand there on the mound before you pitch. And for me, um, as I looked back and remembered the prayer that I prayed and asking God to give us the strength to endure, to be standing there on the mound, um, just moved me into a position of being overwhelmed with thankfulness. Thankfulness that he brought all these amazing people into my story to help me stand on that mound one more time and be able to pitch again. And I was so grateful, um, uh, overwhelmed with thankfulness. And, uh, and, 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 but I will tell you, um, when, the, when the first cheer went up, when I went out and I stood there and I took a moment to thank them, took a moment to thank God and all the people that were involved in this story. Um, when the umpire said, play ball, and it was like this thing, this switch was turned on and I was back in game mode. And I got to tell you, Stephen, that felt so good. I mean, it just rushed over me. And all of a sudden it's like, let's go, man. This is game on. And uh, man, that day was so much fun pitching. I mean, I was hitting spots. I was, my sinker was moving, my cutter was working. I mean, there was so much going on that was um, allowing me to be able to go through eight innings and 93 pitches. 
with bedrock coming in and getting the saves. So yeah, that was, yeah, that was a really, really special day. Probably one of the last lefties to ever go eight innings. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I I know, I know five days later, it's a little bit of a different feel. Um, You make the, the next start and a few pitches in the arm snaps. So, I mean, you had worked all this way to come back and, you know, you got the first one out of the way and there was momentum building um, for you to make that full comeback. Um, was that even a remote possibility in your head when you took the mound for that second game? No, no, I was feeling so good. I mean, everything was, I was firing on all cylinders, all cylinders. I remembered in the fifth inning, after the fifth inning, I came in and, you know, and I felt a little bit of discomfort in my shoulder, but it was, it was nothing unusual or abnormal. It wasn't something it was, I had felt that kind of feeling before. So you, you just shake it off and you get ready to go. And when I went up back out there in the sixth inning, um, all of a sudden, you know, I get to Tim Raines at the plate and, you know, I throw that pitch and my left arm snaps in half. And it, so it was a total shock to me. I had no indication, no idea whatsoever as to what was going on in my left arm, none whatsoever. So yeah, that was, that was a, that was a shock to say the least. And the, the giants made it to the world series that year. And um, in the Bay bridge series, of course. And I don't think I've ever heard you answer this, but everybody knows what they were doing before game three, when the earthquake hit, do you remember what you were doing before game three? I know there's an injury, another injury with the arm leading up until that point, but do you remember where you were and kind of what you felt in the, when that happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was sitting in the clubhouse I was at my locker. Um, I think Bob Nepper was uh, two lockers down and I was just sitting there, you know, getting ready for the game. And, and uh, all of a sudden Bob looks at me and he goes, what's that noise? I said, yeah, what, what in the world is that? And I know sooner got out. What is that? He said, let's get out of here, man. It's an earthquake. And so with that, we both got up and we sprinted to the parking lot. I mean, we just bolted. And, and then the next thought that came to mind is, where's my mom and dad? Where's my wife? Where are all these friends that are there? Um, we had the publishing company um, that we, we were about to sign a contract with Comeback. And so all the people from the publishing company that were there, my literary agent was there. I mean, all these people. And now I'm wondering, okay, are they safe? Where are they at? And uh that was, it was just a wild time. And, and fortunately over time, you know, and what didn't take very long, you know, the, the players had their families come to them and, and we were able to reconnect. And the next concern was our kids because they weren't with us and they were back at the apartment down in Foster city. And we were wondering if they were safe. And unfortunately we couldn't get in touch with them and we had to wait until we actually got home and a 20 minute drive ended up being a two and a half hour drive. And uh, fortunately, when we got there, the kids were fine. A couple things got knocked off of shelves, but uh, for the most part, everything was okay. Hey, things are replaceable. So absolutely. And then a few years go by, of course, Um, you know, the left arm might not be improving the way, you know, you hope, and it gets amputated. So, I mean, it's been over 30 years since that has happened. I mean, looking back 30 years is a long time. 
I mean, it, it's it's almost like your your life was kind of split in half a little bit. So is there any reflection after 30 years of, of you know, since the uh, the left arm has been amputated? Yeah, there's, I've, I've had the opportunity to reflect a lot. I've had the opportunity to um, uh, just go back and, and think about what happened, um, uh, the memories around that event, um, the, the platform that was established for me as a result of going through pain and suffering that has given me the opportunity to travel the country for 30 years telling my story. Um, and, and, I, and I have to tell you that oftentimes I've, I've been asked, you know, uh, did, you, did you feel like something was taken away from you? Uh, do you regret anything that happened during that time? Uh, and, and my response is always no. I don't, I don't think, as a matter of fact, nothing was taken away from me. I was given the opportunity to play Major League Baseball. The first day I put that uniform on, my dream came true. The next seven years and 115 days, that was the icing on the cake, Stephen. So nobody expected this kid from Youngstown, Ohio, to ultimately become a Major League pitcher and last in the big leagues for almost eight years. Nobody expected that. And so when I look back on that, I look back on that with thankfulness. And part of it is that, that I'm able to look back and I'm able to see all the people that played such an incredible role in my life that allowed me to help to experience that dream coming true. I think about my dad as a coach and my mom and dad both you know, never trying to live their dream through me. And they were just my cheerleaders. They were on my side, rooting me on the whole way. And, um, and I think about the encouragement that came from that. I think about the words that my dad has shared often with me, um, you know, work as hard as you can to be the best you can, but more important than anything else, have fun doing it. So there's too many people that are doing things that they're miserable in. And, they, and as a result, they live miserable lives. And so I've always carried that mantra with me to enjoy. And so all those years in the big leagues, man, I was, I was just a bigger version of my little league self playing baseball and getting paid for it. And I absolutely loved it. You know, I think about all the friends that I have made that I still have relationships with today. My minor league buddies that I still stay connected with today along with my big league buddies. I think about all the doctors and all the nurses. And, and, and I remember, I see their faces as you and I are talking because I remember them all. I think about the Lurie family who owned the Giants at the time and the way they, they loved on Jan and I. Um, I think about Al Rosen and Roger Craig and Norm Sherry and the coaching staff. I think about all these wonderful memories. So, so when I look back, um, the first thing I am is grateful. Grateful for all the people that came into my life that made a difference in helping me to get where I got. Um, when I look back, I think about all the wonderful people that helped me in the most difficult period of time in my life. And I'm so grateful for that, those relationships because they got me back to the big leagues. 
And then afterwards, they cared for me. Even when it was the hardest thing they had to do in removing my left arm and shoulder. You realize that over 30 years ago, there was a doctor by the name of Murray Brennan. I have not shared this with anyone because it just happened. Over 30 years ago, he removed my left arm and shoulder. He wrote the forward to our book, When You Can't Come Back, which was book number two. And he said what he did was a barbaric act, removing my left arm and shoulder. And my response to him was, you've saved my life. Wow. About, about a month ago, three weeks ago, I get an email. Hey, 1989, uh, come back. This is a blast from the past, way back, almost 30 years ago, Dave. I'm just following up to see how you are doing. I hope all is well. I trust that you're continuing to share your story of faith and helping those who are going through struggles to endure. He said, Murray, this is Murray Brennan, and just checking in. I was like, oh my God. 30 some years later, this man who's the chief of surgery at Sloan Kettering Cancer Research Center sends me an email to check in and see how I was doing. My wife and I had the biggest smile on our faces because that man plays a significant role in the story that God was writing in my life. And, 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 and now, you know, when I look back now, I often tell those stories. I tell those stories because I want people to know that as much as it's important to be in the moment, carpe diem, seize the moment, as much as it's important to seize the moment and to plan for the future and look to the future with hope, there's a whole life that was lived back here that together brought you where you are at today. And all of it has helped me to become the man that I am today. All of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But as I move forward, it's what I'm able to take with me that I've learned that will allow me to continue to learn as I live forward. And, and that for me has been the greatest gift of all. And it's come through pain and suffering. It's come through pain and suffering. And so for that, I'm eternally grateful because um, I want to learn to love more. I want to learn to live out of joy more. I want to learn to live with peace more and, and, and kindness and goodness and with patience and self-control. I mean, these are all things that are a part of our lives that we should, we should be looking towards. That's, that's what character is. You know, it's not about how much I acquire. You said it earlier. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. You can replace stuff. But the one thing that I've learned is the value of relationships um, has taught me that it's more about who I am instead of what I do. And who I am is about this character that's in me, this man that's in me, the, the man that God has made. And I want to live out of that place. I want to live out of that place where, where I esteem others greater than myself. I want to live out of the place where um, I'm thinking of others in a way that can help them not hurt them. I want to build people up. I don't want to tear them down. 
you know, I want to love my wife more tomorrow than I do today. My kids are almost 40 and 37. I love them more today than I have ever loved them. And they've given me four grandkids. I mean, being a grandparent, Stephen is one of the most incredible gifts in the universe. And I love being a grandparent to my two grandsons and my two granddaughters. And, and those are the kind of things that I cherish. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's really special to be able to look back and to see where I'm at and all that I've learned through mostly the tough stuff. Dr. Murray, if you're listening, you saved Mr. Trevecki's life. So there we go. Just putting that out there. Um, and you mentioned in your book that, and, and in a few other different interviews that you've done, uh, that you figured that if, if you ditch the arm, you'll ditch all the problems and all the problems will go away. Yeah. Um, and, and once it was gone, I know you've mentioned before that there was kind of an identity crisis that you went through and there was marriage counseling, there was anger, anger classes. How much did your wife, Jan, play a part in kind of bringing your spirits back and transforming yourself to the person, you know, back to the person that you really wanted to be? Yeah, that's a great question, Stephen. I, um, you know, I mentioned the good, the bad, and the ugly as a part of my story. Um, and, you know, when I was going through the bad things, it was hard to articulate the pain, the stuff that was going on inside of me. And as a result of that, um, I became verbally abusive. I became very angry because I didn't know how to articulate what was going on inside of me. And unfortunately, the ones I loved the most were the ones I took it out on. And, 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 and what, what Jan has shown me through all of this, and she would remind me all the time, look, I know you're hurting right now, but this isn't who you are. I know your heart. I just want you to know, I know your heart. And as much as I would resist and fight that, she showed me grace in ways that I didn't deserve, but she gave it anyway. And I am so grateful that in her showing me that grace, I was actually able to run into and understand the grace that God has for me in the midst of my struggles. Um, none of us are going to be perfect, at least not here on this planet. And what I've learned is the struggles have brought me to a place of understanding the significance of being vulnerable and opening up to that pain, actually looking for the help to get through that pain by understanding how to articulate it and talk about it. And so we both went into counseling. And while we were in counseling, I discovered that I had incredibly poor communication skills. And for obvious reasons, that's why I couldn't get out what was going on inside. I couldn't identify it. And so my only way to deal with it was to be angry. Well, I discovered that I didn't have to be angry. I could diffuse the anger by simply identifying what in the world was going on inside my heart. And nine times out of 10, what nudges us towards that place of anger is fear, frustration, or hurt. And so as I learned that, I was able to identify what was going on so that I could actually deal with that instead of getting angry. 
And it became this beautiful process through counseling of being able to heal um, and heal with my wife in relationship to this. Uh, the other aspect that we both needed was medication, you know, and, and I'm not afraid to say that through our depression, we were on medication. Um, I mean, we're living at a, in a time in our, in our history right now with all that has happened over the last two years with many people, and we've seen it where it's become public that athletes are talking about their depression. I was dealing with this 30 years ago, Stephen. I was dealing with the reality of that the fact that depression does exist. I was learning then the power of being vulnerable. And in being vulnerable was the beginning of healing. And so as a result of that, I was, I was overwhelmed by going through the counseling and learning, you know, learning all that I could learn in the midst of going through the counseling. And then to get on the medication, which helped to bring balance with what we now understand is serotonin in our system, that chemical, um, it helped to get me to a place of normalcy where I didn't feel disconnected. It helped Jan to get to a place of normalcy where she didn't feel disconnected. And that's when we began the healing process moving forward. And as a result of that, when we got out of the first round of counseling, which was 18 months, she asked if I wouldn't mind going to a counselor in Colorado where we had just moved and to deal with my anger issues. And I was, I was like, absolutely, let's go. Because I didn't want to be that man anymore. And I didn't have to be that man anymore. I didn't ever have to show anger. But I needed to figure out how to deal with it. And so for the next 12 months, after that 18 months, I went into counseling to deal with my anger. And I learned the tools that were necessary to be able to combat being Mount Vesuvius. And, you know, I had a lot of help with my heritage. You know, I'm Italian and Slovak. You know, those two things rubbing together can produce a lot of friction. And so that 12 months of counseling was such a gift. I look back on that now. I'm so grateful, first of all, you know, in the midst of my story, everybody always looks to the physical pain, to the loss of the arm. It's hard to understand the emotional pain, the struggle spiritually. How do you deal with that? How do you get through that? How do you get to the other side healthy enough to live life, a full life? And, and that was my process. And that's a process that anyone can embrace, especially if they find themselves in that deep, dark hole. The only thing you got to do is admit it and then seek the help. Those are the two hardest things to do when you find yourself there. But when you do, the gift is amazing. And so I'm extremely grateful for the people that came into our lives during that time to encourage us as we went through those dark days. Um, and to wrap this all up around the point that you made with my wife, um, like I said, she showed me grace like I had never experienced. She showed me love like I had never experienced. She really 
didn't have to put up with this guy. But she loved me so much and she had so much grace for me that it was through that love and that grace that helped move me through this process of healing. And I'm so grateful for that because as a result of that, it simply reflected the amount of love and grace that God has for me. And, uh, and that was very important going through the struggle. That's some powerful stuff. And I mean, you've, you've told the story for, for so many years and uh, does it ever get tiring telling the story? Do you ever like when, whenever you get requests like this, do you always go, Oh man, another one, or, or is it kind of just another opportunity to maybe change someone's life? Yeah. The latter of the two, it's an opportunity <laughs> through my story to actually hopefully to plant a seed to maybe nudge someone to get the help that they need or to think through the things that I'm saying and try and understand where that fits in your own life. Um, you know, so yeah, this is, uh, this is something that, that I enjoy doing thoroughly. Um, my father still wonders, and he's 91 now, he still wonders when I'm going to grow up and get a real job because I'm having so much fun doing what I'm doing, Stephen. Um, I remember there was a period during there, uh, there was a period of time when I was speaking a lot and I was really tired. And, and it was getting frustrating because, you know, I was saying the same story over and over and over again. And I was telling a friend um, how frustrated I was. And I'll never forget the words that came out of his mouth. He said, Dave, look, I know it's hard. But he said, you might want to take this approach. Remember, wherever you go, whoever you speak to, they're hearing it for the first time. That changed my perspective like that. And I thought, oh my gosh, all you're doing is sitting there thinking about how tired you are of telling the same story. And that person that you're going to see can't wait to hear that story. You need to get an attitude adjustment, Dave. And, uh, and so in that moment, I, uh, I realized it was time to adjust my thinking on how I felt about telling my story. Yeah, no doubt. And before we wrap up here, I mean, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you've been working as a community ambassador with the Giants. Um, so how cool has that role been to work in? I know you're doing some speaking on the side, like you mentioned. Um, so what is, how, how has that role been and kind of what's on tap for you uh, that's upcoming? Yeah, um, the role has been amazing. Um, I'm going into my, I think this is my 12th year as an ambassador. And uh, I'll never forget 11 years ago, talking to uh, Mario Alioto and, uh, and, and just discussing the possibilities of, of coming and spending time at the ballpark and hanging out with the fans and helping the organization as an alum to represent the Giants in the Bay Area. And, 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 and the fact that the Giants would, would want me to come back, number one, was overwhelming. It was like, oh my gosh, I played for this incredible organization for such a short period of time. As a matter of fact, I think the total number of games that I pitched for the Giants was either 26 or 27. But it feels like I've been there for 10 years because that's how they have treated me. And so when Mario gave me the opportunity to come back and be a part of the family, I was overwhelmed. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, this is like the most incredible gift that anyone can give. And I now get to be a part of the organization that I love so much and had 
treated me so amazingly during that time of uh, the most difficult time of my life. And so it was just incredible to be able to be asked to come back and be a part of the organization. And now getting the opportunity um, to tell my story in the context of the Giants story when I'm with fans, to be able to hang out with fans, to help sponsorship when it comes to the businesses that are sponsors at the ballpark and to spend time with the clients and to hang out with them and talk baseball and talk Giants baseball and share my story um, has just been amazing. I mean, um, I feel as though the Giants are the ones that have, I've, I've received the most amazing gift of all by getting the opportunity to do that. Um, it's just a privilege and an honor, you know, even though I'm not in uniform, uniform and I'm wearing street clothes, uh, to rep represent the San Francisco Giants uh, in the Bay Area and to be a part of an organization that um, cares deeply about its community, you know, and to be a part of something that, um, quite frankly, is bigger than any one individual, but collectively, we are the San Francisco Giants. And so it's a beautiful thing to be um, a part of. It's a wonderful family to be engaged with. And uh, when I say that family, it's not just the organization, but it's all Giants fans everywhere that are part of this incredible family. Mr. Derecki, I really appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm really glad that we could talk and, and you could share your your really powerful story. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure talking with you, buddy. And you guys can follow the podcast, of course, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcast. Uh, YouTube, wherever you find your podcast, we are there and uh, go give it a thumbs up. Thank you guys for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.